Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I couldn't be more excited as we start a terrific run of guests on this podcast that's going to take us into the summer and beyond. We've got celebrities and athletes lined up for you that I think will entertain you, and I look forward to you being on the journey with me. You know, my guest today is just the man to bat in the leadoff spot as we start this lineup, and you may remember him as the voice of Salem the Cat on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. He's also the co-writer of Paul Blart Mall Cop and also the sequel with his friend and the star of those movies, Kevin James. And he's currently the executive producer of the terrific CBS sitcom, Mom. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, a great friend of the podcast, Mr. Nick Bakai. It's great to be back. I had so much fun the last time. And uh, congratulations on how how big this thing's gotten for you. I'm very happy because you're really funny and it's well-deserved. Well, thank you. Uh, And I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to come on and, and do the podcast. I believe it was the, I want to say like the third episode of the podcast. And, uh, right. you know, so you uh, you took a chance and, and came on this podcast. So uh, I appreciate that a, a lot, actually. It was a, it was quite a big deal to, uh, you know, gather some of the luster from your star, my friend. <laughs> what, there, what, what there is left, it's all yours. <laughs> Well, listen, I was thinking to myself, what what are we going to talk about this time? And and the first thing that I jotted down uh, about the 70s is I was thinking, okay, what 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 would be fun to talk to Nick about uh, 70s related? And and the first thing I jotted down was uh, utter disregard for safety in every way. We we are of an era where safety was not nearly the priority that people make it today. Would you Would you not agree? Oh, I do agree. I hadn't really thought about it, but the minute you said that, I'm like, God, is that the truth? Um, yeah, the, the things that are considered high risk now were sort of daily normal behavior back then. That was a different time. No seatbelt laws that I recall. No. Uh, no, I remember when I was living in Texas, in the early 80s, you could still, um, you know, everyone had a gun rack in their truck, <laughs> and you could still drink beer while you were driving. You know? Yeah, that was just that was just Texas multitasking right there. Yeah, you, exactly, and it made for um, really fun moments when, you know, you, somebody, you piss somebody off on the highway. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, be careful. It seems inc- inconceivable now, and probably for very good reasons, but yeah, man, you know, there were drive throughs where you get a six-pack and just drive out and start drinking crazy. nobody saw a problem with this at the time no i think it was you know one of those many things that was housed under how dare you take my inalienable rights away from me so um you know that, 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 that i think there's a lot of pride associated with it <laughs> this is america yeah, you know, I have the right to do this. I, I've got a list here, a few things that I that I that I jotted down. No car seats. I mean, what's a car seat? They, they now you you take your kid home from the hospital and they they actually stand there and visually watch you put your child in the car seat. Oh yeah, I've been through that one twice now, and that is like you know, don't even think about it. Um, yeah, no car seats. I remember, um, you know. It, used to have those metal fold-up chairs for kids. I don't know if you're... <laughs> well, yeah, you're sh- showing your age a little like, bit. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> it's over. Who am I kidding? No, they, they literally had these little fold-up metal saucer seats on the, the floor of the back seat of a cab. And it was really fun. The kid, you'd fold it up and sit on it. Um, just a death trap. <laughs> It was first of all, cars back in those days they were they were huge, generally speaking. So there's plenty of room for you to to, to run around in the car irresponsibly. Oh, yeah. if you think about concussions, which are all the rage, and how just your brain getting rattled around in your skull. I mean, that's what cars were. There's a lot of room 
entire body can constantly knocked around. Toys made of metal. Toys were made of metal, and toys had sharp edges. Now everything is plastic, and the edges are all smoothed off, and everything's soft, and I'm sure it's gone through testing and retesting. Back in the day, toys were metal. We, we, we expected children to play with those, and, you know, you cut yourself, you got injured. That was just, uh, yeah. that's just the price you paid. You had your tetanus shot, right? <laughs> that's right. I, uh, and, and also, you know, I've, uh, I, I've child-proofed a house, you know, and there was no such thing as that when we were little, you know, not in the 70s. If you happen to have a forehead that was right at the perfect height for the, for the sharp corner of a coffee table, that's too bad. <laughs> it's so true. How but, else is a kid going to learn, I guess? Well, I think the adult attitude in those days is we've been here longer than you, and yeah. you, you, you're going to have to accommodate yourself to our our world. Oh, I agree with that 100%. That has flipped completely. I mean, I got... Um, it's, it's, it's not so bad now. My boys are a little bit older. But, you know, when my, my oldest was in preschool, you know, I used to just see people blood drain out of Taipei mothers' faces when they realized that I had packed my son baloney. You know? <laughs> I mean, How dare you, sir? I know. And, you know, my, my, my argument was always, um, yeah, my kid eats baloney. You know who else You know who else ate baloney? Every quarterback in the Hall of Fame. That's right. So I think it'll be okay. But, yeah, you know, now we've swung to, um, and I understand it because, uh, you know, the minute you have kids, you're, you're your instinct to protect them just goes into overdrive, but the world has really played into that too. It really has no no amber alerts. You know, it was kind of like the world just realized we're going to lose some kids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just here and there, you're going to lose a few along the way. You just Listen, you know, we all we had there was you know the the infamous lawn darts. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> I remember playing with those. They were fantastic, but. You know, the minute you look back on it, you realize this is a, a horrible idea. And you want to talk about metal toys, right? Um, that was just a, a, a bone-piercing death machine. They gathered momentum at a frightening oh, rate. My God, yeah, no, that, that was a terrible idea. Playgrounds were just injuries waiting to happen. Oh, yeah, like, I'm, and now, yeah, they're all padded now, for one thing. You know, they all have that sort of, absorbent surface on the bottom and, and it's like the, the kids today they're too good even for dirt <laughs> it's right that's exactly right too good for dirt and you know god forbid you get on the slide and burn your thighs because the sun's been beating oh, down on it all day that's right a good old metal slide and what was that thing that that rotating whirling wheel um oh yeah yeah what was that thing called what it's called, but you get that thing going about 90 miles an hour, and, and all the handles on it were made out of, you know, just crude plumbing metal elbows and joints, you know, how many people would have lost teeth on that? <laughs> people getting thrown off. Oh, just the whole point of it is how, how recklessly you could be hurled into oblivion. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all the playgrounds I go to with the kids now, and oh my gosh. And, and they also, you know, now all the stuff that you climb on literally looks like a pirate ship. Um, you know, the, we, we had to use our imagination. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. We used our imagination. Then we went home and we uh, inhaled secondhand smoke all day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How prevalent cigarettes were. That's something people really don't understand. Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh I grew up in Kentucky. I mean, yeah, everybody smoked. That was the law. You had to smoke. Yeah. There was no other option. My parents would throw parties, and my mom had these little silver cups um, that she would fill with Marlboro Reds and just have them out with matches. You know, so that no one had to go more than three feet without being able to strike up a Marlboro. That's just thoughtful, is what that is. I thought so. I thought it was classy. That's pretty classy. I'm going to tell you. I, so, uh, you know, so we beat the odds, I think, just to even be here and do this yeah. podcast today. I know what you, I, I think that I did certainly look back on my ride and 
and I think this is amazing. I'm still here. <laughs> I know it was it was the Wild West. It wasn't that long ago. It's just amazing to me that we can make it all the way from the dawn of human history to like thirty or forty years ago, and the, and some of these things never occur to anybody. It oh, absolutely. I know. It's um. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I I wonder what the numbers are. Is it a safer world, or is it just sort of the law of averages even these things out? I would love to know the research. Yeah, it's a great question. The baby-proofing, metaphorically speaking, of our world, has it made a big difference? I wonder. I wonder, too. I think that, I do sometimes feel like we've gone too far. Like, some of it was good, but now maybe we've, like, gone past that point, and we're just going overboard now. Well, you know, the thing that's remarkable when I look at the way my boys are growing up compared to the way I did in, in downtown Buffalo, New York in the 60s and 70s, you know, my kids are accounted for, as most people's are, 24-7. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we were growing up, you know, on a summer day, you'd get your bike and you'd leave the house and you'd do your very best to be home before dark, you know, and... And uh, my God, you know, just wandering anywhere you want, solo. I mean, it's so different now. Every so day. I go, wow. Yeah. I survived that too, you know? Every day of our childhood was basically like the plot for a, for a Lifetime movie where somebody <laughs> loses their kid, right? Yeah, that's right. It's Somehow we made it back. What happened to Billy? <laughs> right. <laughs> Every day of our life, we just walk that tightrope and, you know, somehow unscathed. Uh, so another thing I was thinking about, and we didn't get into this a lot last time, but obviously you've you've worked in, in television on many different projects through the years. And, and, and one of the things I was thinking of is that one of the biggest changes that I've seen over the course of my life from the time that I was a kid is is how television has changed and how we consume it has changed. When I was a kid, we were looking at maybe, I don't know, five or six channels that we could get in my house. You, you, you had the networks, you had PBS, you had maybe some local channel that showed gun smoke reruns all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have one of those. And it was, uh, there wasn't a lot to it, but I feel like we've lost something in the sense that, you know, it's like to think, for instance, I was thinking about this. I don't know why this show popped into my mind, but I was thinking about Laverne and Shirley. Mm -hmm. I watched Laverne and Shirley like every week when I was a kid. I don't even know that I ever really liked it that much, no, but there was a lot of that. you watched it because it was on and you were, on. you were glad to have something it. Really, something really boring, you know, it was. I know the, 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 this whole, um, you know, destination. People having complete control over their content, and literally now being able to stream entire seasons, which is a great experience. I do it when the shows you love come on, and you can just marathon for mm -hmm. them. It's magnificent. But but there is something weird about it too. You're right because I, I I go back to that time too when you had. You know, the only other thing we had in our um, little TV experience growing up where I did is we got the CBC from Toronto. Hey. And, um, and that was like watching TV from a parallel universe. <laughs> you know, like, it was so bizarre because it's like, you know, there were like these shows. I remember one CBC show called The Party Game. Talk about Talking about shows that you would never have watched if you had options, but because you didn't, you were exposed to things that you, I, I think that people now are too a la carte. I think you're not exposed to things that might actually help you grow or learn something that you weren't inclined to. But I remember this show was called The Party Game, and it was local Canadian Toronto celebrities playing charades. And <laughs> that sounds awful. It was hilariously bad, um, but, you know, good, bad, riveting. And... You know, the greatest thing was that, you know, the, all the celebrities were people you've never heard of. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Burton Cummings. It was, you know, <laughs> some guy doing, you know, two rooms review at a dinner theater in Hamilton, you know. So it was, it was crazy. But, you know, and, and 
and all the weird sponsors. I mean, just, but yeah, I, I mean, and you know, we, always, we grew up also with whatever your local affiliates, local library of movies were. So you ended up watching movies on a rotation every year. Every year of my life, I saw To Serve With Love. <laughs> saw all these other movies that were in the library. And you know, you just got to know these movies in a way that was kind of bizarre too. It's it's almost like the Louis C.K. bit where he uh, where he's talking about how everything is awesome and and people don't appreciate it. You know, like maybe we just maybe we need to go back to just some C list Toronto celebrities playing charades and all of us just you know digest that for a while. And well, that's the beauty of the world we live in. I'm sure. Well, who knows with this thing? But there's a good chance YouTube's got a clip or two of that one. You know, I mean. You can you can jump into the time machine and see things you can't believe, you know, are are out there and available now, which is amazing. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely I know that a lot of the point of view and a lot of whatever my voice is that I've you know used in my writing career, a lot of it was forged by much more by the shows I I had to watch than the ones I wanted to, um, because. That was where your frustrations and, you know, the, the, the anger of, like, why am I watching Dobie Gillis or, you know, um, that's where the yeah. comedy comes from. It doesn't come from, oh, I love Mary Tyler Moore. It's a wonderful show. It's like, you know, a lot of people I work with who dreamed of being sitcom writers, they have this kind of reverence for the great sitcoms. And I, I just feel like I'm a different animal because my voice came out of, um, how much I despised uh, having to watch shows that was better than not watching TV. That's where a voice comes from. So, uh, you know, now with everybody being able to watch everything they love and nothing they don't love, um, it'll be interesting to see the ramifications of that down the road. That's really interesting because you're right. Back in the day, all you really had to beat out was just nothing. I mean, you'd be up on a Sunday morning, and I'd watch this show called Lamp Unto My Feet, which was, I don't even, I'm not a, a religious guy, and I wasn't raised with the Bible. I'm sure it's a biblical quote that I still don't understand. Um, but it was just, you know, two clergymen talking for half an hour, you know, in one lockdown master shot. And, uh, you know, but it was still better than not watching TV. Right. <laughs> and I became obsessed with the great classic Europe TV evangelists. This I would not have stumbled upon if I had been able to watch anything I wanted at any time. But I became obsessed with Swagger, and uh, I really loved Ernest Angley. Do you remember him? Oh my gosh, yes. My uh, yeah, my mom used to watch that. Like that. Yeah. Oh, that stuff was so crazy and surreal. Um, and you know, I could go on and on about things like. I became obsessed with that I never my kids will never know even exist because they can watch Teen Titans go well that's the there's so many things today that there's so many choices that somebody can tell you what their favorite television show is and you have no idea what is that on Hulu is that on Netflix is that on a network (laughs) networks you don't know it's it's on Flabble (laughs) what it's 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 too much. I think I the same thing is true with sports. I, it's we get so much sports content that I don't think we appreciate it like we did back in the day when you, you know the baseball game of the week or or Monday night football was oh, sure. one of your yeah, limited opportunities. I yeah, those were those were such concentrated important things. I mean, it's happened to me. Um, I really don't do any sports stuff anymore, um, and I and and that has the nice thing about it is that I don't have to maintain my awareness and knowledge of sports that I find incredibly dull. So I'm basically down to hockey and football, and I have a network devoted to both. And I have to tell you, I can't tell you the last time I watched Sports Center because I really don't want to watch hoops highlights. I don't want to watch tennis. I don't want to watch a lot of this crap, you know. Um, and now there's, you know, a, a direct mainline delivery service for the sports I want. And and so even in my experience, 
my my sports viewing has become very small, very specialized. You have to pare down, I think, at some point in your life. I mean, I was a beast when I was a kid. I I followed everything. Can't do it. Oh no, I can't do it either. And I I, don't, I gotta tell you, I'm not that interested. I mean, if if something hasn't grabbed my interest by this late stage, <laughs> you know, it's unlikely. I'm never going to be a basketball guy. I didn't grow up playing it, you know. Um, it's just the way it is, and, and it's great to jettison that stuff. Um, but there were so many years where I really had to be fluent because I was—I never knew what what sport or what individuals I was going to get assigned to do material on. Um, I just—I had to be, you know, I had to be broad and cover all the bases and. It's a huge relief to not have to do that anymore. I can imagine. I I wouldn't want the responsibility of that. I, I sometimes listen to the drive time guys here in Chicago and I think to myself, you know, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be such a bad gig. But then I think to myself, I've got to go in and and, and try to fake like I understand hockey because I've never been a hockey guy because I grew up in the South and I mean I know just Why a little bit. You? Yeah, I'd be exposed on the radio. Well and yeah, that that's uh I think that that's an interesting point on two levels. One is um, it lets you know how many people are faking it. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, it's true. The point at which it is, it is simply not possible to be completely expertly fluent on, in a world that now has to include FIFA soccer. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. They keep MMA. They're just new things that we didn't have to worry about. Now they're oh, so much new crap. Pardon the interruption, which is a show that I enjoy, but but Kornheiser and Wilbon, they're they're faking it some of the time. <laughs> There's no way you can't tell me that Tony Kornheiser is uh, you know pouring over FIFA rosters. So, Gosh, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of that. There was a guy who did a really popular show out of San Diego a radio show. His name was uh, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, and and the, you know pre-internet, pre-instant information delivery systems. Hacksaw's headlines was like this half-hour rundown of everything that had happened that day in the world of sports, and it was great. I loved listening to it, but there were all sorts of moments um, that I think sort of went semi-viral where people would just prank him and you know call him up and ask about some kid in the Padres single A system, and and he would it, it, they would create players and he would just go off on them, you know he would just. <laughs> You know, <laughs> this kid. Let me tell you about this kid. He uh, is you know, terrific. Uh, more powerful from the left side of the plate. You know, be like, well, he's just making this up. It's so fantastic. What? But there's a lot of making it. There really is. I just, I think it's a matter of whether you're a good enough actor. But um, you know, people will pop off on anything. I mean, didn't that just happen? I think with Mike Francesa. Oh yeah. Um, he was just talking about uh, the NCAA tournament. And was, you know, just instead of saying uh, taking a break or or saying I don't know, he, he felt the need to know. And you know, people get tripped up all the time by that one. It takes a man to say I'm sorry, I don't really know enough about that. Yeah, and in Francesa, that's not really in Mike's makeup. No. no, no. <laughs> The, Mike has a short memory too. If one of his predictions is wrong, he just gets on the radio the next day and denies it. There you go. Never happened. You know, that is pundit land that we live in now, you know? Um, no one is actually held accountable. Um, oh, not no one, but often, if you're just simply willing to rewrite your own history day in, day out, um, you're fine. You just keep cruising along because you're you're generally preaching to the choir of converts anyway. Um, and our detention spans are so short, we just move on to the next thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you about late night talk. You know, I, I think that I became a fan of yours uh, back around 1989, 1990, somewhere in there when uh, you were uh, on uh, Night After Night with Alan Havey. And uh, uh, I guess it was the Comedy Channel then, right, That's initially? Correct. That was the Comedy... Yeah, it was the Comedy Channel. I had to think about that one for a minute. And uh, I, I don't know. I love that show. I remember the Cholesterol Carousel. <laughs> I believe. I so much fun. It was, it was, you know, our little low-budget, 
late-night comedy show on what is now Comedy Central. Um, and in the early days, there were two formats that were kind of dueling. Um, we were the HBO Time Warner one was the Comedy Channel, and Viacom MTV had one called Ha. And, you know, a, a lot of really interesting people got launched at these things, but, um, you know, they were low distribution in the early going, so you'd be on one cable system in a city and not two others. And it was very, very a strange quilt of coverage. But, you know, we were, we were sort of given free reign as long as we kept it clean um, because all energy was on trying to sell the channel. And if you didn't burn the studio down, they were like, great, just keep doing what you're doing. We love it. <laughs> well, I love that show. I uh... That show was, I never had more fun in my entire career. That, that was a great time. That was a lot of fun. And I believe it was 90, I want to say 92 uh, when you uh, you went in on Dennis Miller's Enterprise. And I wanted to ask you about that, and I'm sure that you've answered a jillion questions about this through the years, but that is one of those misses that you look back on the talent that was involved with it, you look back on the time period where it happened, and at least for me as an outsider, I think to myself, a break here or a break there, and th that show could have been a big hit. I think you're right about that. I mean, I, I went there thinking that the pedigree of that project was pretty impeccable, and I think that uh, you know, Dennis is at the height of his game. I mean, he still is. He's just He has evolved and is a different animal now. But, um, you know, it, it, there was an, an incredible writing staff. No one, you know, the show didn't even make a full year, I don't think, but um, the people who wrote that show have gone on to, to do so much. Um, the, the, you know, we were all young, you know, staff writers making variety show minimum, but it was Mark Brazil who created that 70s show and uh, Match, Max Muchnick and David Cohen who did uh, Will and Grace, Stephen Leo who wrote uh, the Santa Claus movies, uh, the legendary Drake Sather, late and, and much loved and missed, but one of the great original voices, Norm MacDonald. Was oh great. my God, I love Norm. I could go on and on. This map was just deep, man. And um, so you got all that kind of writing talent, and it was all handpicked by Dennis. Most of the guys were guys who had caught his ear when they were middle acts opening for him on the road. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I had caught his attention doing night after night because uh, Dennis happened to live somewhere where the network was on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I remember he approached me and I was at a Paul Simon concert in the park, at Central Park and I got to the sort of HBO area because they were running our channel and, I, and it was just weird kismet but Dennis was doing little interstitial segments for that live simulcast for HBO and he and I crossed paths and he said I, he, I, he and I connected there and he said I've been watching you do this thing and you know within a month I, I got the offer to be sort of his sidekick and a writer on that show and it's what got me to LA and it was wonderful um, but you know the timing was weird on that one um, it turned out that we launched concurrent with Johnny Carson's retirement and then um, the early Jay Leno Tonight Show era when his uh, manager Helen Kushnick who's a fairly infamous character uh, was made no bones about the fact that if anybody did our show, they were blackballed from doing the Tonight Show. And um, we were just a little syndicated. We were syndicated through the Tribune, speaking of Chicago. Um, then we were on in a ton of markets, but um, we just, uh, it just didn't come together. It just did not happen. And it's kind of crazy looking back on it because I think it could have gone the distance. I mean, Conan, within two years, was there. Right. After after Letterman, you know, and, and, and uh, it's really, um, you know, uh, you see this happen a lot, though. You'll look at, like, failed pilots, and you'll see who they had in the cast, you know, moments before a lot of these people broke, and, and it's stunning. You'll see unbelievable assembly of people, and for some reason, that pilot didn't get a pickup from the network, but um, something atrocious did, so you, you can never figure this stuff out. I assume you were a big Carson fan. Ah, uh, absolutely. 
you know, I think just about just about everybody whose uh, comedic sensibilities I enjoy were Carson fans, and I was a huge Letterman guy in the '80s as well. Um, did, did you ever do Letterman? No, I would have loved to, but no, I never did. I did Conan a couple of times um, back in the NBC era, but uh, that was it. Um, and oh, I would have uh, literally would have had an out of body experience if I had ever been able to do. Letterman or Carson, you know, but that would have been crazy. That's terrible. I, you I, should have been on Letterman. That that's that's not right. You no, need to. A... I appreciate that. <laughs> I, you know, it would have been great. It would have been so much fun. But you know, um, yeah, I, I'm the same way. I, I think both of those guys were enormous influence on me, and and most of the people I collaborate with, you know, they, they just it was such a brilliant sensibility, and it's very interesting watching what's happened in recent years and late night is very interesting to me um, because Letterman brought in beautifully uh, the era of ironic distance from hosting your own show mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and that was so so refreshing and so fascinating but it ran its course for a long time and then I find it very interesting because Fallon is a return to a guy who is just um, unabashedly thrilled and enthused to have this show and there's just so much play and fun in that show and I think people were really ready for that change um, and now it's really interesting because with with the political stuff that's going on I feel like that's kind of given Colbert some legs that weren't there before I'm just fascinated to watch it play out in terms of what it tells us about our, our culture yeah no it's really a, a good point that you make and I there's there's so much more of it now right I mean there's a lot of different Kimmel. I mean, how long's Kimmel been on now? Oh, oh man, I know it's deceptive. He's been there forever, and I thought he was so good on the Oscars. Um, and I wasn't sure about that one. I thought, well, I don't know if he's got enough club for that. And I mm-hmm. thought he was brilliant. And uh, yeah, man, he, he's he, he's the one who, in a way, it's crazy because I think things were it, it sort of every year was. I don't know if we're renewing him in the early going. Um, and he's become a force. You know? Yeah, he's the yeah. you know. I guess after Conan, he's he's got the second most tenure in in late night. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But yeah, it's so crowded now. I mean, then there's the Daily Show people, and then there's Samantha B, and there's, there's there was Chelsea Handler. You know, there 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 is such a big crowded world now. What do you think about the role of comedy uh, in current events and the news? Because I, because John Stewart, uh, I, I think there were a lot of people of a certain age who were tuning in to John Stewart for their news. Oh, I agree. I know a lot of people who that they they eschewed the traditional service, for, you know, delivery service for that show, um, which is amazing. And you think about, um, I, I, I don't think I've even seen Trevor Noah do that show. Is that his name? Yeah, I've I've never seen it either since Stuart left. Nothing against him. I just I'm I'm not a big political guy that way, so I wasn't gonna fall follow that lead. But um, Stuart is a guy that you feel like, well, why? How on earth is he not? With what's going on in the world, how can he not be doing that? You know, uh, because he was so brilliant and yet so willing to opinionate and come with a point of view, so strong and refreshing. And the fact that he could do it with a, with such amazing humor is such a sign of intelligence. It just makes you trust trust that person because you can trust their intellect. Yeah, well said. I, I uh, Stuart, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, John's not going into full time semi retirement because if there's such a thing, because I'd like to see him back on television. You know, one thing that uh, to switch gears here, one thing that. I didn't know about you until recently is that you went to SMU. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, going to college in Texas. And you were there, I think, during the uh, death penalty era of SMU football. I went to grad school there for two years, and it was the Pony Express death penalty years. Um, You know, it was the, the year that they finished number three in the nation. Um, you know Dickerson and James, and, um, and you know, I, I, I mean, you, you could tell. I mean, it was the glory days. I mean, the, the glory days of the Southwest Conference too, which was fantastic because 
it was everywhere they have oil in one <laughs> conference, you know, and just these crazy Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, you know, just it was just everyone was so rich and so pumped up about their football teams, and the corruption was so magnificent. It was an incredible era, and you, you literally, SMU is not a big school, big campus kind of place, and you would see guys driving around in crazy cars. <laughs> and it was not exactly, you know, under the table. It was just out there. It was everything about it was so Texas bold, you know. Did you see the thirty for thirty? I sure did. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I'm obviously, you know, particularly interested in that one, but I loved it. It was great. College athletics. Where, where do you stand on college athletics? You're telling me that. You're more of a hockey and football guy now. Is it just NFL, or are you... Yeah, pretty much. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's really dictated by where I grew up in Buffalo, where there was an NFL team and an NHL team, and I played those sports, and I loved them. But, you know, you know there, there was no football program at the University of Buffalo for years. And there was, then there wasn't. Now it's back, and it's, you know, making a little noise, but it just was not a component of life there for me growing up. Also not a major league baseball town for me. So and, and we had the Braves, and I did kind of get into them when they were the, you know, the, the, that era of the NBA. But um, they just didn't hold with me. But you know, that, that's it. I never was a college guy. I'm sure I would have been if I'd gone anywhere that had anything going for it, collegiate, you know, in terms of football or anything like that. But I didn't. I went to a, a little liberal arts school, good school, but not about the sports. You know, one thing that I was thinking about the 70s, another thing I jotted down here for uh, for your consideration today, is the fact that it seems like, and we still occasionally get a fat guy who is successful in pro sports. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, linemen, but we occasionally get a fat guy at a position where, you know, it's not really optimal to be fat uh, who succeeds. But back in the 70s, you know, there was there was room for the fat man at the highest levels really of athletics. Point. Really good point. It's like, um, yeah, Mickey Lolich. Remember watching him pitch? Yeah. Um, you know, which is like he would deliver the ball, and then half of his blubber would would continue its momentum for about five seconds towards the plate. Um, he, you know, he literally owned a donut shop. You gotta love Mickey Lolich, right? Yeah, tremendous uh, pitcher. I think he threw like 370 innings one year. Yeah, no, he was a workhorse too. He's a really good pitcher. Um, but yeah, the fat guy. I mean, that's um, you know, I mean, the, the Jared Lorenzen is you know just the, the greatest thing that ever happened to quarterback, as far as I'm concerned. Watching him play football with those quarterback shoulder pads. <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever. And he was good, you know. Just, there's some guys just have it, you know. And, um, yeah, I love the big, big, bad body guys. Yeah, bad body guys. Like, bad body guys, right? I'm thinking of like even there were there were fat kickers. Why on earth yeah. would you? Why on earth would you sign a fat kicker? Of all things, a lot of them. A lot of them you can just tell they just drank beer all the time. Yes. You know, the Tony Fritch body type, remember that? Tony Fritch is the first guy I thought of when when right. when yeah. I Yeah. Efren Herrera was pretty chunky. <laughs> I love it. Fat kickers. Fat kickers, Tom <laughs> Dempsey. Got a guy named John Leipold who was a big big moose and he would often make the tackle as well on kickoff. <laughs> right. And he also was like a pro billiards player. So you know these guys, and that's the year or two where, you know, look, the, the greatest picture in the history of sports is Glenn Dawson smoking that rail at the halftime of the Super Bowl. I'm sure you know that. Picture. Yeah, it really is. It, it, with a fresca. Corner, yeah, with a fresca. <laughs> the cornerstone picture for European. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they just, you know, bad habits. Guys drinking and smoking and Ah, oh, you know, it's just a different era, indeed. I love Tom Dempsey. You know, you're talking about a guy who, you know, he's born without, born without a, a, a right hand, has born with half of a right foot, probably checking in. I don't know how tall he was. He was probably five eleven or something like that. Probably checking in at a, oh gosh, probably like a solid two fifty, two sixty. Oh, at least, yeah. And and this yeah, guy had like a ten year career. 
did. He was a Buffalo guy at one time, right? He was briefly with the Bills, yeah. And of course, for years, had the record for the longest. An insanely long kick. 64, was it? Uh, six, 63. Guys were not hitting him anywhere near that. Yeah, game winner, too. Yeah, that's right. And it didn't cost, didn't it cost them the number one pick in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it may have, actually. I think it did. Yeah. Um, uh, I was thinking about other guys who just didn't look athletic. Like like Fred Belitnikoff is a guy that yeah. comes to mind. Hall of Fame wide receiver. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I can believe that this guy was an auto mechanic. I can believe that, you know, he was he was like the janitor at your middle school. But <laughs> that guy of all people, if you say NFL wide receiver, NFL wide receivers don't look like Fred Belitnikoff. Well, you are so right. You're so right. Yeah. A lot of those guys, a lot of great players, you, just, you wouldn't have guessed it. I mean, I always felt that way about Ted Hendricks, speaking of Raiders, you know? He just looked like he didn't have any muscle at all on him, you know? And how about Jack Lambert? Yeah. Jack Lambert Jack was like a 200-pound linebacker that struck fear in people's hearts. Um, and, you know, when I, Lambert and Bolitnikov both, to me, have such cigarette smoker bodies. <laughs> Totally. Like, Belitnikov. You know those fingers oh. from old golds, you know? Oh. Belitnikov, yeah. he looks like the guy that, like, he's like the uncle that you wouldn't even want to throw a pass, like, at the backyard Thanksgiving game because, you know, he smokes two packs a day and he's, you know, having coffin fits at the dinner table. Yeah. I know. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Uh, you know, I, I, I got to ask you here as we as we come down the stretch. I want to ask you about uh, the, the tale of the tape, both the book and the and the concept, because anybody that has that has followed uh, your career and particularly uh, where your comedy has converged with sports uh, is going to know what I'm talking about. But I'm I'm interested in the genesis of this concept because. The, the tale of the tape, uh, you know, if I've got to make the short list of uh, Nick Bakai comedy that I've really enjoyed, I, I, I can't leave that off. Oh, that's nice to hear. I, it sure was fun, and we did a billion of them, you know. Um, but uh, it was, you know, the way that came about, I, when I was back at Comedy Channel, we did a show called Sports Monster, which was a, sort of a parody of Sports Center. And the tale of the tape department, as I recall... Something that we cooked up on that show, um, and I had forgotten all about it. And I was doing a shoot. I was a comic strip live, um, which is a Fox show of stand-up mm-hmm. comedy. They shot at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard, and in that era, and they had me come on and do a couple of bits on there. And it was, the producers of that show had watched a tape of an old sports monster and said, why don't you do that? And I was like, okay, you know, and did it. And as I recall, it was something crazy like, uh, you know, that that year in the Oscars, the big movie was Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And so I did a tale of the tape, Unforgiven versus the movie Leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> And the fun thing about that was, I, you know, I did them live in front of a crowd at a club, and that's how the show was taped. And it just crushed with the crowd, and I went, oh, my God, this is really interesting. And, you know, when I got hired to work for ESPN2, um, that was one of the things they really knew they wanted. They wanted the tail of the tape. Um, and, you know, we'll see what else happens. But, uh, you know, and, and it went from there. You know, I ended up doing it for... I don't know how many, uh, you know, a lot of years at ESPN. Um, and they'd have me do them for all sorts of things. Um, I did, I remember doing one at the NFL draft, um, Mel Kuyper versus Jimmy Johnson, when Jimmy was working for ESPN and who had the better hair. And I did that live at Madison Square Garden. I mean, they, they, but they had me do some great ones. I did one that was so delightful. Uh, for me, it was when the Buffalo Sabres were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs in the playoffs, and ESPN was still carrying NHL hockey. And growing up in Buffalo, the rivalry with Toronto, it's just the most hated team. And they're this big, glamorous international city, and where there's beer fart. <laughs> you know, just, 
I went to town on a Buffalo Toronto one that people still in Buffalo revere because it was so home skewed. Um, but it was great. It's so much fun doing it. And then Robin and I, my wife Robin, wrote, wrote almost all of them with me that I can think of, and we put a book out of those and new ones. And um, it was great. It was really, really fun to do. And the book, I... those great little comedy departments that just works beautifully. Well, the and thing I kind of, I, I kind of stumbled into it thanks to other people. Well, see, I would think from a just from the standpoint of making comedy, the thing that is so fun about it is you can juxtapose just about any two things and and they can be like like with 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 the Clint Eastwood movie versus Leprechaun you can do the sublime versus the ridiculous but you can go anywhere you want you can go great on great bad on bad the best ones a lot of the best ones were city rivalries um you know it just it went in a million directions and, and and I want to put a plug for this book here though Tale of the Tape I think it's 2004 I mean it's a it's an older title but you can still go on you can still go on Amazon and get this there's a Kindle version of it I believe and it's uh I think it's been so long and I, I've got a few boxes in the basement so. <laughs> hey listen we'll uh, we'll give away an autographed copy here but there you go uh, but no it's it's something you should check out if you like at Super 70 Sports uh, the t- tale of the tape, I think, is going to be right up your alley. I'm going to tell you one of my favorites from the from the book, because uh, I-, I was looking through it today, and Mike Tyson versus Michael Jackson uh, <laughs> is a classic. And I'm going to tell you my, my my favorite one was Reach, and I don't know if you remember this off the top of your head, but Tyson Tyson 38 inches, 42 inches at a beauty pageant. <laughs> and then the one that just slays me, Jackson, 36 inches, 40 inches at a jamboree. <laughs> Which. Oh my God. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and then Advantage, I want to hear you say it. I'm going to think that's probably Advantage Push. <laughs> yes, it Rock is. Which is, the, which is the money line. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it was really take no prisoners in those things. Uh, it's just so they funny. Go really hard at things, and some of them are really, really like. I look back on it, and I think about the general sensibilities at ESPN, especially back then. Um, I remember they had me do one Mikey Stacy versus uh, Mike Price, and it was two coaches who had just blown their careers up. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, Larry, Larry Eustachy. Larry Eustachy. Yeah, was he from Iowa State? Maybe he was the guy that yeah, went to, like, the sorority house or the frat party, wasn't he? He ripped at a, at a frat party at the rival school. <laughs> yes. Never a good look for the head coach. He got, like, had hookers in his room at a celebrity golf tournament, and it cost him a job. And I look back on those, and I, I honestly... Um, you know, as you get older and wiser, um, you know, the, the, there's a cheap shot factor that I'm a little chagrined about now. Um, but boy, they, they, they let me go after anything and everyone. It's hard yeah. to imagine them They're doing right. that now. Oh, I know. It, it, it really is. It's, it, it's such a different world over there now um, from what I see of it, which is not a whole lot these days. You know, what do you make as an outsider of like this big reduction in in uh, t- uh, talent that they're that they're talking I about. Really, I mean, maybe, I, I, I mean, you know, they're trying to stay young and relevant or are they really cutting salaries because, you know, they've, they've lost money from their heights of glory. But uh, I think it's really weird because it's just been an exodus of personality. Um, it, to me, it's like all you need to know about where they went wrong is, I mean, you Oberman and Patrick, and now Berman, and now he's still there, but it's going to be emeritus status, I guess. Um, but so many vivid, interesting people are gone, like them or not. Um, and, you know, their big thing now at midnight is, and I don't know this guy, and I got no nothing against it, but Scott Van Pelt is being sold as, like, a personality. And I don't think there is one there. And even the logo, it's like a bald dome with a headset on. You know, just it's like I just think they don't know what they're doing. I think that 
maybe it's that they always wanted the brand to be the star. And there was always, I felt, a certain level of annoyance when uh, performers uh, became big. You know, I think they wanted the brand to be generically wonderful and, and nobody should overshadow it. Um, it doesn't really work that way. Um, it was those personalities that made ESPN pop, you know, and as maybe uh, tired or cliched as some people think Berman's act became, I remember how unbelievably revolutionary and refreshing it was when he started. And it starts an exodus to ESPN, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think they've become very, very clinical. Um, I think that most of their personality, and you know, I know they've got all these people screaming at each other shows, and that's where the personality's gone. Um, but those are really hard for me to watch. I don't understand. I really don't understand the attraction of them. So I'm clearly not of this world because everyone loves them except me. But I don't get it. I really, I, I don't get. I don't get Bayless. I don't get. Um, I'm sorry, Wilbon and Kornheiser. I could never watch that show. Um, I just, you know, I, I got my own opinions. I got my own friends. I, it's for me. It's like masturbating to pornography. It's like, don't you have an opinion of your own? Don't you have someone you can talk? To? And and listen, the worst the worst kind of pornography is pornography that involves Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Listen, there's a niche for everything. <laughs> Don't judge. <laughs> there's a, there are people out there somewhere on the interwebs uh, for whom they, there's a discussion board and, and everything for that. You know, I, I almost forgot, but I, I want to touch on the fact that back in the day, uh, you were you were the, the chief filling guy for, for Jim Rome, were you not? I was back in talk two days, in the early going at least. Um yeah, it's when I started work for ESPN2 doing Tale of the Tape. Um, they would, and I, I, I think I might have sat in on that show about 40 times over the years. Um, and, you know, it was just whenever Jim had a, a conflict or it just was not available for whatever reason. And, you know, that happens when you're doing five a week, 52 weeks a year, you know. So, But it was yeah. really interesting. It was live. Um, it's so far back. I remember... There were two hard outs we always had to hit, and that's when we would throw back to Bristol. We shot the show in L.A., but we'd throw back to Bristol uh, for the Sports Smash, I believe it was called, which was these little quick updates. And the main Sports Smash people were Susie Culver, Stuart Scott, and Kenny Maine. So that's how long ago that was. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was really fun. Um, but, you know, again, you're talking about in a full circle sense, the need to be up and aware. I mean, it's like my phone would ring and say, hey, can you come in tomorrow and do the show? And I'd say, sure. And they'd say, well, you know, and it was 90 minutes. And there were times where I had to do 90 minutes with professional volleyball players. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, how do you, oh, do, how do, you, you know? do that? Well, there was a lot of cramming, for one thing. On a night like that, I literally would be up in bed with my laptop just digesting as much as I could about something. Here we are back to faking it. I know nothing about it. Other than Jose Cuervo, I know nothing about pro volleyball. Um, and I will say too, at that time, the show was produced by a very young Mark Shapiro, who went on to run ESPN and now um, works for Daniel Snyder and runs his empire. And is an absolutely brilliant guy. Um, and you know, the one thing is when you have a great smart producer in your ear, they come to your rescue, you know? And there were times where it's like, you know, man, I remember I had to do, uh, Tamu Solani, um, in his like second year in the NHL and he's from Finland and his English is okay, but not great. And I had a lot of questions prepared and we burned them all out in like the first segment and I had to do like seven segments. <laughs> Because all of his answers were, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Not that, you know, oh. Okay, now how do you bail yourself out of that on live TV? I don't, well, you know what, that's when I'd hear Mark Shapiro's comforting voice in my ear saying, why don't we open up the phone lines? You know, like, <laughs> Good call. How about, this? how about that? Throwing an idea. It was really, you know. But, you know, for every one of those, there were other ones where I remember 
I, I interviewed Bubba Smith, and it was just fantastic um, because he was talking his open book. He was talking about how he um, used to have his phone number listed in the Baltimore phone book to meet women, <laughs> and he had this great theory of how Super Bowl three was fixed. It was fascinating. So you know, there were other nights where it was like, I can't believe this is over already because. You got somebody who's engaging and who's open, and uh, it, it's really exciting. Overall, did you enjoy the experience of interviewing people, or is it one of those things where if you had to do it uh, all the time, it would it would grind you down? Uh, I think that's a little bit of both. You know, um, I'm sure you're experiencing that <laughs> podcast. You know, it's a grind because uh, um, you know there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Um, you know, you've got to be the point guard, and you've got to be prepared, and you've got to think things through. Um, but on the other hand, when, when it's good and when it's natural, it's a delightful experience. So, um, yeah, I love doing it. I love doing it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe they let me do anything in the world of sports because I really came at it from such a fan and such a different – I did not go to Syracuse in the broadcasting department you know i never thought anyone would let me near this stuff so I, I, it was a real thrill um and definitely one of those things where you realize well i kind of found a way to get through the looking glass and uh and i had so many unbelievably incredible experiences and access and met amazing people um it was a really great part of my career um you know, so I, I loved every minute of it. Well, let me leave you with this. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but not not too much on the spot. Um, I want you to, to just off the top of your head, your three favorite athletes of the '70s. Okay, uh, it's going to be very Buffalo centric. Um, well, okay, names are popping into my head. Um, Lem Barney came to mind because I worship Lem Barney, the great uh, Detroit Lion punt returner and D-back. But, uh, Number 20 before Barry Sanders, right? There you go. Yeah. Great Sports Illustrated poster of him waiting underneath a punt. Uh, oh, I love that. So cool. Um, but uh, you know, O.J. Simpson and Gilbert Perrault, who were the shining stars of Buffalo sports in the 70s, um, you know, O.J. is so infamous now, but um, he was electric and dazzling and amazing. And when you're in a town that doesn't have a lot going for it, and Buffalo really didn't in the 70s, um, you know, it was just amazing to have this superstar there. And Perot was uh, an artist in the game. Uh, in the era when you could, like Bobby Orr, produce an, a, a rink-long rush and score a goal, which... Hockey has unfortunately just lost all of that. Mm -hmm. um, he was that same guy. You'd see him wind up behind the net. And the moves and the speed and the magic, it took your breath away. So th th those are the instant answers for me. I, I have to tell you, the, the story that everybody loved from uh, the pod that we did last year was uh, your chance encounter with O.J., uh, in the golf course parking lot, and I, I watched the OJ uh, American Crime Story, and I just felt like it would have been a little bit better if there had just been that scene. Uh, you play in yourself, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Cuba Gooding comes over, and uh, you know, you have that interaction play out. I somehow, for me, it's become it's become this uh, integral part of the OJ Simpson uh, story. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'll never forget my wife. Just tell me he's not coming over for dinner, right? Yeah, that was that was an incredible day. Um, yeah, it's amazing because he got so much publicity this year from that, which was really, I thought, great TV, um, uh, riveting, and uh, how great was Travolta? Um, you know, <laughs> Tremendous. Everyone, all the good actors are character actors at heart, and that was more proof of that. Um, same thing with Tom Cruise in that uh, Tropic Thunder playing that agent. Holy cow, that studio had... That's one of, that's one of Tom Cruise's best uh, performances oh, ever. Amazing performance. I always think Cruise, you know, he was a changeling as a young actor. and You know, he's an amazing leading man and a superstar, but he's a character actor at heart, too. But, 
Um, and then that OJ documentary thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, Made in America. Oh, that thing made me want to jump out a window. It was so depressing. Oh, I know. It was well done. It was brilliant. But I, I had to stop at a certain point because it just it was just getting kicked in the nuts hour after hour. And you know, every shot of Buffalo in the '70s looked like it was being shot through stained underpants. You know? <laughs> just relentless and I hated it do you think OJ's going to get released this year <laughs> it seems like he's it seems like he's got a good chance based on what I'm hearing apparently he's been a model citizen. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know I, I guess so I, I, know, I, I do not have any again I'm, I'm Francesa and I'm, I'm making it up like I know, I know. <laughs> no, nobody's going to remember if you want to be bold that, this is just going to die on the internet somewhere like I everything know. else does I think um, there's a reality show I want to see. <laughs> what if he moved back to Buffalo and just uh, you know reestablished his? You know, he doesn't he have a better chance in Buffalo of oh, like yeah. you know getting back into society and being accepted than anywhere else? It's funny because it's true, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in Buffalo give him a little wink. Like, I know. Nobody's I know. perfect, right? I mean, uh, you know, 2003, you know, baby. We don't condone anything that you did, allegedly, but, man, I, I saw you gain 260 yards against the Steelers, you know. So, yeah, that would be his only shot. Um, it ain't happening in L.A., but that's where the TV show will be. So, you know, the carnival of it, very intriguing. But uh, but when he gets released, we know that he's not coming over to your place for dinner. That's uh, No, no, I don't think I can get that one over the finish line here. All these years later, the answer would be the same. <laughs> well, t- well, tell me what do you ha- what do you have going on here as we uh, as we uh, call um, this wonderful uh, podcast to a close. I am uh, still and uh, happily uh, executive producer on the CBS hit uh, comedy Mom, starring Allison Janney and Anna Ferris. Um, we are renewed for our fifth season. Um, I'm on hiatus from that right now, which is great. Um, and seeing my kids and all that, and I'm trying to cook up a couple of movie things. Well, uh, you'll be on a, a, the, the first to know if anything actually comes of them. But okay, um, yeah, I want to break it here. Okay. Oh, you. Get, I, I, uh, <laughs> I will give you a scoop. Okay, so that's what I need to take this thing to the next level. I need to break the news. This thing on the map. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, are, are you going to do anything else with with Kevin James, or you know, you you guys have collaborated? The other day. show um kevin can wait but i did call him up and say are you still in the movie business and he said yeah and i, I have a couple of ideas uh that i'm gonna run by him and we, you never know we'll see hey there you go i i like the sound of that and and, and mom uh, what's the what's the night and time for those that uh, We're, uh well you never know uh year to year but we have traditionally been at nine o'clock on thursday and um uh, we've uh, had a great run with this show. It's been a wonderful experience, and uh, I definitely recommend people check it out. And I don't always do that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some things out there that you're actively looking to uh, scrub from the net, I believe. Yeah, you will not hear me add that. Check it out. I'll just say, I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but this one, we're actually proud of. No, this one's done really well. Allison's won a couple of Emmys, um, and you know it's it's a, a multi-cam traditional sitcom format with a little bit different kind of content, um, and we go to some places that aren't normally associated with that genre, but it's still really, really funny. I recommend it. All right. Good stuff, my friend. I, I'll tell you, the interviewing business, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is always a pleasure when I have you on this podcast, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Me too. Always fun. Keep up the good work through the tweets of the bomb. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. My thanks again to Nick Bakai. What a pleasure to have him on the show. For a second time, one of my favorite guys to just shoot the bull with. I think we could talk about anything and I would have fun. Uh, He's one of the sharpest guys out there in the world of entertainment or anywhere else. And one of the 
earliest influences on my own comedic sensibilities. Just always such a pleasure to have him on, and I look forward to the next time. Nick, we appreciate you. My guest next week, well, what can I say about this guy? You know him from films such as The Outsiders, St. Elmo's Fire, Wayne's World, and the Austin Powers franchise, as well as TV hits such as The West Wing and Parks and Recreation. That's right, Rob Lowe joins me for a discussion about growing up in the 1970s, his love of sports, and Hollywood. So until then, this is Ricky Cobb saying to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.